Is World War III possible, or is it a fantasy cooked up in popular imagination? To understand this, we, that means you and I, need to look at and understand what on earth World War I was and what in heaven's name World War II was. For some of you, it's easy peasy lemon squeezy. For others, it may need some explanation. I'm not going to take a traditional route here. I'm going to give you some historical context that is typically understood, but also kind of somewhat-ish unique to explaining what I think is the non, not, non-possibility of World War III in, say, 2022, 2023, 2024, 2025, or whenever you listen to this podcast. Of course, certain preconditions do need to be met, but I'll get to that. First, though, World War I, and then World War II. So what makes World War I and World War II the big ones? Why was not the Seven Years' War or the Napoleonic Wars counted as world wars? That's right. Just in case you don't know, there was a war called the Seven Years' War, and there was a war called the Napoleonic Wars. And they were not considered world wars, and you need to get to the gist of why that was. So actually, in theory, if you think about it, World War I could have been World War Three, World War Two could have been World War Four, and then we should be talking about World War Five. But I'm not going to go into those naming conventions. All four of these wars, essentially, Napoleonic Wars, Seven Years' War, World War Two, World War I, all of them were Eurocentric wars, meaning it was a fight in Europe, and it was a fight for Europe. Only Europe mattered. In the case of World War I and of World War II, a lot, and I mean a lot, of the fighting also happened outside of Europe, but it included European powers. The Seven Years' War, that started in 1756 and went on to 1763, was primarily a European conflict, but it had some global impact as well. And global was very limited, and I use that term very, very loosely. It had some powers, some influence, some wars in Asia and the Americas, and that's how it all started. So the Seven Years' War, because you know, to, to contend that it was a global war, uh, and by the way, it took place 160 years before World War I, and also Winston Churchill described the conflict as the First World War, would you believe it? The war itself, though, was restructured, and it was to restructure, I would argue, the European political order. So it patterned events around the world for that purpose. It was the British, for example, fighting another European power, the French in North America. It was the French colluding with the Indians in India against the British, for example. So it was a global conflict because it was a European conflict and then it got projected elsewhere. The Napoleonic Wars that went on from 1803 to 1815 was also primarily a Eurocentric conflict. The idea there was that the French hoped to isolate and weaken Britain economically through Napoleon Bonaparte's continental system, i.e. a blockade of British trade, especially shipping. The Russians were also involved because they were unwilling to bear the economic consequences of a reduced trade and therefore constantly violated Napoleon's continental system, resulting in Napoleon launching a massive invasion of Russia. Of course, if the Russians are involved, they straddle two continents. If the Ottomans are involved, they straddle two continents. If Egypt is involved, they straddle two continents. Oh, and by the way, Iran was somewhat involved in this mess too. Keep in mind though, at this stage, countries like the United Kingdom in particular, but others were also holding massive territories in their own empires elsewhere the Americas, Asia, Australia, Africa. So I'll argue again that the Napoleonic Wars were primarily a European war, although it ended in a French defeat. It was a European war that was fought, just like Seven Years' War, in alternative theatres. 1815 is when it ended, 
and that set the stage for a hundred years of diplomatic theater before the onset of the Great War, also known as World War I. World War I was fought between 1914 and 1918. 1919 was the Peace Treaty of Versailles that settled the affair once and for all with the defeat of Germany and the victory of the so-called Allies. This is where the Seven Years' War and the Napoleonic Wars differ. World War I was definitely more of a global conflict. It spanned four years in which millions of people were killed. The belligerents included pretty much all of Europe or much of Europe, the whole Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and later the United States. Of course, by 1914, the European countries had even more possessions abroad and the land, wealth, and resources were plundered in order to fuel this initial European conflict. Again, it, to me at least, it was all about Europe. Towards the end, China was dragged in. Of course, Japan was also in this war too, primarily through, primarily through and through. This was still a European war that extended beyond its borders. And it was for Europe. Again, it was hardcore European conflict. World War II was more of a global conflict than even World War I. And it was only fought 21 years after the end of the First World War. The main European powers, including Russia, proxy Europeans such as Canada, Australia, the United States, and New Zealand were also involved, as were the various imperial possessions such as Iraq, Burma, and India. In addition, Japan was involved in its own right as well as China. This is, in theory, involving the vast majority of the world's countries, including all of the great powers forming two opposing military alliances, the so-called Allies and the so-called Axis powers. And those are the world wars. Now, in the case of World War II, it is much, much more global than the others. But again, it started primarily in Europe. All right, so that was my quickfire examination of the world wars. Now, there are some common themes, and we need to look at those. The main theater of conflict always seems to be Europe. The historical importance is often given to Europe. Now, if imperial possessions are involved, then they get involved too. Anglophone countries do need to be involved to constitute a world war, and Russia must be in the picture somewhere. So then, the big question, what would World War III look like? Well, it would need to involve Europe. Russia would need to be involved in some capacity, and the Anglos from all over the world would need to join in. France and Germany should also be involved. More importantly, though, it would need to be a European war. The Europeans would need to fuel the war. And it would need all the Anglos abroad, like the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, to fight and die for a European cause, primarily the British one. It may need Japan, China, and possibly the resources and plundering of India as well. Okay, so Europeans. In Europe, there are two militaries today. I'm talking about today, not history. The US military, and sometimes this is disguised as NATO, and then the Russian military. If for a second you think that countries like Germany, Denmark, or Italy have power or they matter, you're living on another world. The UK and France may think they have independence, but they're under the US umbrella 100%. They have no power. The Turks, I would say, could only be the only one, I would say, in NATO who are independent of the US, but they too are in NATO. So really, there are only two militaries in Europe today, Russia and the US. So in Europe, it would be a US versus Russia conflict. Like the onset of World War I, when dodgy alliances were kicked into action, the big dodgy alliance today is NATO, where an attack by Russia on even tiny Estonia would end up with Russia and the US trading massive nuclear weapons with one another. Insane, I know, 
but that's what you get with NATO-like alliances, those very risks. Both the US and Russia do operate outside of Europe, so other parts of the world could be dragged into this. Now, keep in mind that Canada is also in NATO, and it would drag Canada into a conflict. An open question would be Australia and New Zealand. I think the Anglos in those countries may want to fight for Europe in Europe, but the new Asian demographics in those countries, as well as distance, may need more limited support in a current-type conflict. That leaves Japan. Today, it's an occupied U.S. proxy. It will do the U.S.'s bidding, but may indeed refuse to get involved directly in a conflict, partly because they have been protected by the U.S. for so many decades that they do not know anymore how to fight. The Americans could and would use Japan pretty much as an aircraft carrier. The Koreas are split. Koreas are split, yes. The North will largely stay quiet, and as long as it is not threatened by Japan or the South, will do nothing. It may so show some tiny belligerence. Again, because the South, like Japan, is a proxy of the US hosting US troops, the US may want to provoke the war in the North, or at least provoke North Korea into a conflict. Again, as in the case of Japan, without the US the South would be defeated in a war with the North anyway, and both Koreas equally dislike Japan more than they dislike each other. Speaking of disliking Japan, China also dislikes Japan. These days, however, China is under no obligation to be a treaty partner to anyone. It's its own power, and it does not need to materially support any party, including Russia. Though it could, it does not need to attack Japan, though it could. It could, though, use the distraction of the US and Europe as an opportunity to secure, say, renegade Taiwan. Technically, the US may be dragged into that, but if they are fighting the Russians in Europe, then they may forego Taiwan. As for the rest, and this is the really crucial part, the really, really crucial part, the very crucial part, the rest, including China, are not under Europe's thumb anymore. The Arabs, the Indians, Iranians, Africans, Latin Americans, Indonesians, and everyone else would simply watch the US and Russia fight it out in Europe. It would be a one-sided war because it would literally be all of the Anglos in Europe versus the Russians because that is how NATO is organized. It's organized to fight against, defend from, and dismantle the Russian state into tiny manageable parts so its resources can be used for European Western glory. The thing in the plan, of course, is that the Russians host thousands of nuclear weapons, enough to take out multiple Western cities. This mad or mutually assured destruction, MAD, prevented a hot war between the US and Russia, the USSR, in the past. NATO, by the way, also possesses the same nukes. So to recap, a world war would start in Europe. It would be Eurocentric. The Anglos, Russia, France, possibly Germany would need to evolve. It has to be Eurocentric. But unlike the previous two world wars, it is unlikely anyone else would want to save Europe's bacon. Why on earth? Would Singapore die for, die for Estonia, or India die for Poland, or South Africa die for Britain? Those days are long gone. In a non-nuclear hot war, NATO and its proxies would be on their own against Russia. In fact, I would bet the Indians, the Chinese, and others tacitly support the Russians over the US. The world has had enough, I feel, of appeasing Western aggression. Conversely, we would probably, like, instead of just a hot war, have a nuclear concert. This would involve massive exchanges of nuclear, possibly chemical and biological weapons between the Russian Federation and the US, including NATO. Likely, the Wests and Russia's big cities would be wiped off the map. Massive radiation, Europe in particular, would be left unlivable. 
This, of course, is mass destruction and nasty for all concerned. A fallout could result in radiation clouds moving to areas that were not part of the conflict, and more importantly, the food and energy hub that is Russia may well be taken out of the picture for decades. In all likelihood, that alone would result in some catastrophe almost everywhere. However, even after a full nuclear exchange, civilizations of India, China, Arabs, Indonesia, Africa, most of Latin America would emerge just fine. Yes, life would be tough for 40, maybe 60, 100, 200 years, but humans adjust. Eventually, radiation will come down, and it's unlikely that the West would have bothered bombing anti-Russian lands or the Russians would have bothered bombing anti-Canadian and American lands. So that could be harvested for energy and oil for people who do survive. And it could probably be used in the future. A nuclear conflict between Russia and the West might even be a long-term net-net neutral outcome for the global South. And indeed, for many, it could even be a net positive. So in my humble opinion, as I go to publish this in December 2022, the chances of World War III, unlike World War I and II, are fairly remote. A nuclear conflict, however, is more likely. And that is if. And by the way, if that happens, the biggest winners would be what you think of today as the third world. Countries like India or China may lose 500 million people each due to, say, hunger or water pollution, but the civilizations would likely continue. The Arabs would be just fine too. Techie, though, would be finished. It's in NATO after all. Japan and South Korea would be done. Australia and New Zealand, as long as they keep out, they may last as the remaining lands that hold large populations of people of European descent. I would argue that even 1,000 years after that nuclear exchange, people currently living in places like Brazil, India, South Africa, etc. would be able to repopulate the global north and the human race would continue just fine. In other words, as long as the Burmese and the Kenyans don't really care about Austria's or Lithuania's borders and are not prepared to die for them, then that's it. There are always winners and losers in war though, aren't there? Now keep an eye on NATO. It is the most dangerous alliance in the world. And its Article 5, i.e. an attack on one is an attack on all, likely will lead to some kind of conflict. Its sole purpose is to defeat the nuclear Russia. It's a recipe for disaster. But that's a discussion for another day. On this, no one's going to die for France. And for Finland, other than the Americans probably, we're all good. Anyway, so now you know. Thanks for listening and thank you for your time. Catch you all soon. Thank you so very much. Thank you.